What is this thing you call kissing? Arthur may not be the most competent person, but he's a man who knows what he wants. He's pretty much going to go and get it. I think he's a millennial almost. He doesn't... He's lost. It was on display in the bottom of a locked filing cabinet, stuck in a disused lavatory with a sign on the door saying, Beware of the Leopard. Welcome to Beware of the Leopard, containing everything you wanted to know about the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but were too well-adjusted to ask. I'm Mark Stedman. A mindless jerk will be the first against the wall when the revolution comes. I'm John Barnes, and I'm more differed from than differing. I'm John Hickman, and I have a highly profitable second-hand biro business. We're continuing our trek through the A's today, but have something a little different in mind for this week. But we'll come to that. For now, let's kick things off with a planet. Argabuthon is a place of law and the original location for the plexiglass scepter of justice, which was nabbed by the cricket robots. It's also the place our heroes found Prack, of whom we'll speak in later episodes. So, Mr. Bounds, have you ever had any dealings with the law that you're still legally able to talk about? Uh, many, many dealings with the law, indeed. Um, some more embarrassing to me and my uh, close uh, friends and family than others. So, I was thinking about this, and I was thinking, um, first, doesn't Argabuthon sound like a uh, very posh cooker that's had to be converted to run on gas? <laughs> yeah. But um, I'm going to save. I'm going to save the emails now, John. That Argus already run on gas. They need a small amount of electricity to uh, to spark them, but then they run on gas. Oh, uh, yeah. I'm just saving us the tweets you're, and emails. Your proper, your proper Argus. Um, yeah, solid fuel, aren't they? They wouldn't run on butane anyway. That would be a wildly uh, weird sort of camp <laughs> camping Argus. I mean, uh, I know you, you go to a caravan and they've got everything. You know, like a shower that's also a sandwich press a cutlery <laughs> drawer that's also a bed that sort of thing but uh, a butane running aga ooh, that's glamping for you but uh <laughs> it's proper glamping. but anyway so a brush with the law right so uh picture the scene um i have uh, recently moved to a small town in the southeast of england um not uh, living with at the time uh, my girlfriend, but uh, she, you know, we I go around to her house and she lends me a car and stuff. So she's moved house as well. Uh, she's moved house, parked her car in front of the house, um, had to go away with work for three weeks. But during that time, I thought, I need that car. I'm going to go around and pop and borrow it. So I get there, uh, get the car keys, um, go outside the house, borrow it, uh come back the next day I thought oh I can't I'll, um, I'll stop over you know there's no one here but I'll stop over um, you might have to cut this down a bit um, so I thought I, anyway so upshot of it is I come outside the house uh, a week later uh, knowing where I've parked the car it's not there it's simply not there um, so I walked all around the, the houses thinking well I can't really know the area where have I parked it I walked down the street up one street down the other thinking Oh, God, I don't know. And it's not my car. So although I know what it is, I don't necessarily know the registration <laughs> number. Um, and it's a red. You don't know what it is, do you, John? Really? Well, it was, I do. You're actually. not that great with cars. So you didn't really know what it was. It was a red Renault Clio, exactly the same as one that I'd had. Um, <gasps> but um, well, that's lucky. But, uh, but I, I couldn't find it. So um, eventually I slept on it thinking, I'll get up tomorrow morning and uh, see if I. And have a and have a you know a really good think about this. It'll turn off. <laughs> no, but it wasn't there. I like the idea that you can you can think it. Uh, you can you can you can make it turn up simply by uh, by the power of thought. Well, I'm confused. You said you, you slept on it, so it was underneath you. 
Oh, hey. dear. So I get up the next morning, and uh, I go out and have another look, but I think, finally, I cannot find this car. My girlfriend's away, uh, uncontactable in the uh, jungles of the Philippines. So I um, I resolved, okay, I'm going to have to go to the police station. Luckily enough, the police station's not very far away uh, from the house. So I, I went for a walk down, went into the great big modern new police station, uh, went to the desk and said to the desk sergeant, a lovely, kindly old desk sergeant, much as you'd see in any small town in the southeast of England, and said... Well, hot fuzz. Excuse me, uh, mate. Um, I'm not sure, but I think our car's been stolen. <laughs> and he said, uh, well, what, what makes you think it's been stolen? I says, well, I can't find it. Um, he's just desolate and he can't deal with this. I mean, he just can't deal with his madness anyway. <laughs> so he um, he uh, he says, well, what you got to do is uh, go into the little uh, room over there and there's a phone in there. And um, basically, I'm going to report it to the uh, call centre, essentially. But there's a route, there's a phone in there I can use. So I go in there, and I was expecting quite a long wait at the police station. So I've got a little paper back in my pocket. So I go in there. There's a table. Uh, there's a bit of paper. There's like a, a wall hung uh, phone. I sit there, and I'm expecting this phone to ring. <laughs> Because thinking he's gonna, he's put me through, and after about thirty minutes, I've realised I've got to pick it up and dial one hundred or whatever the number is for the police these days. Uh, so I ring it up, and um, I've reported it stolen. They said, "Well, uh, we don't, we don't know. We'll have a look. We'll check the pounds, as it were." <laughs> and uh, they, uh, I'm, I'm walking, and then walking back um, to the house, and uh, I get a phone call from them, and here's what happened. My girlfriend had parked her car outside of her house mm -hmm. and then gone on holiday. The next Sunday, temporary parking restrictions were introduced on that side of the street where they put <laughs> essentially double yellow lines out uh, temporarily over a weekend. Her car was parked there. They towed it. Everybody else in the road had moved their cars. They towed the car. It was gone. Then the parking restrictions ended and everybody else in the street put their cars back. <laughs> <laughs> so essentially uh, to the uninitiated to me who wasn't there uh this car had simply vanished <laughs> and from one planet to another the hingafriel people of arkintufel minor tried to build spaceships that were powered by bad news but they didn't work particularly well and were so extremely unwelcome whenever they arrived anywhere that there wasn't really any point in being there john hickman have you ever had to deliver bad news? And do you have any tips? I, Mark, I've lived a charmed life and I have never had to deliver bad news. But I feel like I'm ready when the moment comes. Uh, so I, as for tips, I've got tips because I've been training for the best. My dad has told me some great stories about delivering bad news over over time. Uh, the, probably the best story my dad's got about this is that um, near uh, where I grew up, where he grew up, because we grew up in the same house, uh, there is an old Napoleonic tower uh, that everyone used to go and, and play at. And there was a young lad who was about two or three years younger than, than him and his gang of lads who used to tag along and go, oh, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I do that? And they used to goad him on and lead him into all sorts of trouble. But the thing was, is that he had a terrible, terrible mother who would beat you as soon as look at you. And one day they goaded this young man into tr climbing up to the top of this Napoleonic tower and the twat fell off. <gasps> and he broke his arm <laughs> and they picked him up and they ran to the house, which is about 250 metres. 
and they dumped him on the doorstep and they legged it. That <laughs> is how you deliver bad news. That's how you deliver evidence. I know what to do. I know what to do. You make sure that you do the very best you can to patch things up without getting any blame attracted to you yourself. That is how I would deliver bad news in the future. I think that's my tactic, actually. It's distance myself as far <laughs> away from it as possible and, and, and ensure that this particular messenger is not shot. Exactly. But I, I love this idea about this bad news drive. Mm. Um, I think it's I think it's really, really quite fascinating and it, it fits very well into other things in the Hitchhiker's universe. You can put it alongside the somebody else's problem field. You can put it alongside... Um, Starship Bistromath. Yeah, the Bistromath, which obviously it's the same, same vehicle. Um, infinite Improbability Drive. These are all really kind of uh, abstract ideas that become a bit of science in a way that's really interesting and drive stories through. But unlike... It's something that Pratchett's very good at. Oh, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was thinking like that's that's basically Pratchett's career, isn't it? Is to find one of those and build a whole story out of it. And and Douglas Adams builds a lot of mythos around some of those things. So obviously the improbability the improbability drive is very important as we've touched on before and we'll touch on again when we get to I. Um somebody else's problem field has a lot of story service to give in terms of the whole scene at Lords where they're trying to find it. Um the the, the Bistromass, that's just that's probably one of my favourite things, actually. The idea of bistromathics is just fantastic. But the, this idea of a bad news engine, the, the idea that bad news travels quicker than anything, and therefore if you can power a spaceship with bad news, you can get places really, really, really quickly. It's kind of thrown away mm. compared to those other bigger ideas. Um, it's it's not overly developed, but what Adams does is he very quickly moves on to something quite interesting where he talks um, almost philosophical to, to go back to a previous episode about um, uh, the arms race of speed and how that would play out over time as you're getting faster and faster and faster. And as you're working on kind of quantum scales rather than, I don't know if it's quantum, it's probably the opposite end of quantum, whatever it is, something that's not in our physical laws that we have now. Um, he talks at length about the idea of, so you, um, the the bad news drive nobody likes it because it arrives and upsets people so they drop it but then everyone develops these other means of propulsion instead and he talks about people arriving at uh, um, setting off in a faster than light drive but arriving after the battle's finished because a thousand years after they've left somebody develops a faster engine and they get there first and they resolve the battle and so what do you do when you arrive for the battle a thousand years late well you have the battle anyway because you've had a good snooze because you've been in hypersleep um, and you're going to want to really kind of kind of do that. So that idea about um, the arms race for speed that it enables him to talk about is really, really fascinating. And that idea of multi-layered histories is super, super interesting. And it raises a point of, actually, if the bad news engine had taken off, would somebody have developed something even faster? They'd have developed the fake Ooh, news engine, wouldn't they? Because that travels almost at the speed of light. Well, it travels f- faster than bad news, that's for sure. Yeah. And there's only one thing that travels faster than fake news, and that's the Twitter commentariat engine. That is just unbelievably fast. The hot take engine. The hot take engine, exactly. Hot take technology oh. will be, if you can develop hot take technology, you could beat bad news. The quote about the lie getting all the way around the world before the truth has got his boots on is... Um, 
misattributed, Delight, which it? misattributed to uh, Mark Twain and to Churchill, yeah. as all quotes are. But it's actually Morgan Freeman. <laughs> but I was, I was, gonna, I was thinking that um, Douglas Adams is one of the other people that gets all these sorts of things attributed to him. Um, because, oh, that sounds like the yes. sort of thing he might have said. Yes. <laughs> no, you're right. Yeah. So, before the main event, I wanted to make a recommendation. If you enjoy a good book, chances are you'll like Audible, which is an amazing new way of ingesting literature without all that tedious mucking about with print and spines. Our generous benefactors at Audible are giving away a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial of their service to you, dear listener. And all you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com slash leopard and sign up. If you don't like the service, you can cancel at any time, but I'm pretty sure you'll want to stick around as they've got over 180,000 titles from best-selling authors to choose from. One of the books we wanted to recommend this week is Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman, the uh, memoirs of Nobel Prize-winning physicist Richard P. Feynman. Uh, John Bounds, this is a, a personal pick of yours. Uh, to, why don't you sell, dear listener, on this book? I love this book. Um, Richard Feynman is perhaps um, one of the funniest uh, Nobel Prize winners, apart from Malala. <laughs> <laughs> and Marie Curie. Um, Have you done the maths on that? Uh, <coughs> No, 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 but no, Richard Feynman is uh, phenomenal. He um, was a very, very respected uh, physicist. Um, he basically just does not uh, take any uh, shit. He was on the Manhattan um, Project at Los Alamos. Uh, he's not exactly got a comic turn of phrase. He's not writing funny, but the things he does and the situations he gets himself into are funny. Uh, and it's told in uh, quite um, short and episodic things, and it infuses uh, me, at least, with um, an absolute joy for uh, attempting to find out things in the world. I think um, Dick Feynman is a genius, and, um, yeah, you should get hold of this. Well, you can get the book uh, read by Raymond Todd by going to audibletrial.com slash leopard and signing up for their 30-day free trial. And now we turn to a six-foot-tall ape descendant whose home has been destroyed countless times. Arthur is the closest thing this series has to a hero. Well, he's our hero, damn it, and we're going to celebrate him. We know he's romantic, kind to animals, and enjoys a drink. So, gents, is this someone you'd actually enjoy a pint with? I don't think I would. Pray tell why. I... Hmm... He's oh, he's a difficult one, isn't he? I think he's, he's. I think difficult is a good word. I think he's. I think he's a difficult man. Yeah, he'd really wind me up. Prickly, obstreperous. I don't know why Ford is his friend. <laughs> That's a really because good point. Ford is cool. Yeah, Ford is gregarious and outgoing and doesn't get a lot of Arthur's humour, which is sardonic. Um, it, you know, yeah. I mean, they're they're not likely friends. Is it simply that uh, if you, uh, depending on which canon you you go by, Arthur arguably saved his life? Narratively, it makes sense because you you, you want an odd couple. Yes, so absolutely. It's, it's 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 Rimmer and Lister, isn't it? It's <laughs> that. It's it's the it's the officer class and the and, and the. It's not uh, unlike um, most sort of uh, Arthur supposedly uh, works as a BBC local radio producer. It's not mm-hmm. unlike 
uh, most of the talent, in quotes, production team relationships that uh, happen <laughs> in uh, BBC <gasps> local radio uh, stations up and down the country. There's always... Yes, and for those that are unclear, uh, I think we, we can all understand this straight away, but for those who don't necessarily understand the nuance of, of local radio, we are definitely saying that Arthur is the producer and Ford is the quote-unquote talent here. Um, and, and yeah, that is absolutely sort of, yeah, Arthur walks around with a permanent eye roll. Yeah, someone's got someone's got to sort all this shit out, and the, the joy I think of it is on on earth at least. Arthur may not be the most competent person, but he's a, a man who knows what he wants. He's pretty much going to go and get it uh, sorted. He's you know not necessarily romantically or whatever, but he knows what to. He knows how the the rules are meant to play out. My hand is very firmly up, John. I don't think he does. I think he's a millennial almost. He doesn't. He's lost. I absolutely agree because one of the one of the things that I really enjoyed when I first read the um the final book that that adams wrote in this in this trilogy uh the fifth book Mm. one of the things i really enjoyed is when he tries to explain clockwork to his daughter yes now in any science fiction if a if a if an earthling is displaced from his from his home world and goes to another place he is somehow able to explain how everything works to the alien races what is this thing you call kissing <laughs> but you know he can explain well we have this thing called electricity oh computers they work by um uh, having bits in 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 uh, you know in in a in an on state and an off state and you combine bits and blah blah i love the fact that he doesn't under- he doesn't actually understand how clockwork works and and that's a wonderful thing that that Adams understood about th- his characters that they shouldn't just be all knowing just because they're on a quote unquote backwards planet. It doesn't mean that they know more. So uh, yeah, no, definitely agree with that. But ju- uh, just so I, because John's been quiet uncharacteristically since <laughs> I put him in his place about this. So I just I want to offer you an olive branch, John, which is as much as I don't think I, I don't think Arthur knew or yeah I don't, I don't think i don't think arthur was going to get the life that he wanted and i don't think he had a plan i think there was a plan for him and i think that's what you're really trying to say isn't it well, the, yeah yeah so maybe pattern is a better word than rules but he's like um he wasn't i don't think he was going to be one that was going to be put off by uh the world turning out slightly disappointingly as it does for for most people but then He's catapulted into a place where absolutely everything is strange. He has no rules and, like you say, um, no real uh, way of falling back or recreating any of that stuff. You put him on a a, a planet that grew perfect salon tea, he isn't actually going to be able to make tea out of it. <laughs> I mean, none of us know how that works, right? Absolutely. Often possibly lazily uh, and, and not to... Uh, not to throw anyone under the bus, um, but I think we often talk about Arthur as the archetypical Englishman, and I, I I thought it would be interesting to roll that around because we we we, we want to say that easily, but I think that's because he is the only Englishman in the book, um, and so he becomes the archetype. There is an issue that he's got a burden of representation for the whole human race, isn't he? And and you know, there's um. 
how is he supposed to intersectionally be every single human? He can't possibly. He's not woke enough for starters. He's mediocre white man. That's what he is, isn't he? So he is mediocre white man. I want to make the the quick point. Obviously, that you know, for anyone who's screaming at their uh, at their their iPod, um, <laughs> that we're obviously not discounting Trillion, but she sort of doesn't get added into that canon because of the fact that she's already aware of a world outside. She went off with Zaphod and, and is sort of aware of this world and is vastly more interested totally. in the world outside of the home counties than Arthur is. And so in that sense, yes, she is adic- as much a human, <laughs> obviously, as Arthur Dent is. To put it in today's vernacular, like she voted... Uh, Remain, and he voted leave, didn't he? Would it not be the other way around? She's more of a no. She's more of a kind of a, a citizen of the world, and she'd kind of she'd want to feel part of Europe, and he'd want to feel part of England, wouldn't he? Ah, he vo- yes, I see what you mean. She voted inclusionism, and he voted isolationism. Yes, yeah, because she she's looked at the universe and gone, yeah, I can have that, and I can become a news anchor, and I can do all these other things, and I can. Uh, you know, yeah, I can, I can, make, I can make a life for myself in the universe, mm. um, and I don't want anyone to take that away from me. Whereas Arthur wants a cup of tea in his in his bungalow. Arthur's a perfect representation of a minor public school, uh, not particularly successful Englishman, um, mm. and in that way, he, I don't know, I think he's too um, you know, Cameroon uh to have uh, to have voted uh leave in the Brexit referendum. But um but what I mean he's not he doesn't think of himself as isolationist. He just wishes the rest of the world would the world would go well, away. get on yeah, get on with its own stuff. Now we know that when he's in his element, uh, he can spin a good yarn, as he does again in, in book four. He he gets all his all of his mates around and um and he tells them that he, he went to California and told tells them a, a whole load of uh, a whole load of tales. So when he's at home and when he's comfortable he has a personality and and it might be it might not necessarily be um the the, the best kind of personality but we don't get to see that very much throughout the book we all we get to see is 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 him being a little bit annoyed and being you know shot at and the the wonderful line that he has um when when they are when him and and ford are beset by the um, Golgothrinchians is... Why isn't anyone ever pleased to see us? He's the universe's straight man, in the sense um, that... Well, he's got to be. He's our sort of ingenue, he's our uh, way into the the universe. But um, I I wonder if those facets of the character are... Um, you know, as uh, when when you write, and when most writers write, the idea is... I think at least that you identify parts of your own character um, and you've, the only way you can really work out is what has this character do? Well, what would the bit of me that's like that do that? And it's a little bit like, I think consciously or unconsciously, Douglas has picked different parts of his character and he's picked this sort of, um, I don't really know what's going on. Um, I'm a little bit confused by the world um, character as as the main one, and then there are all these other facets mm. of his character: the raconteur, the person who wants to be hugely, stupidly, romantically in love, and they don't come out in the first couple of books, so not in the um, original radio series or in the, the TV or film versions. But um, later in the books, yeah, you do get hints of that. So, are we uh, aware of where the name? Uh, comes this up. is one of those wonderful things that we've touched on before about the uh, there are there are many different possible histories and we'll never know and it's lovely. To well, the, about the, it. The, the, the what the the name definitely is seen 
Uh, it's the name of a uh, 1600s uh, cleric, essentially, um, mm. from uh, yeah, who also went to Cambridge. And apparently, um, he wrote a book uh, which autobiographies would, uh, well, biographies would have us know, would have us uh, told that Douglas would definitely have seen. Mm-hmm. on uh, his friend's bookshelves. And uh, the the book is called The Plain Man's Pathway to Heaven, mm-hmm. uh, which many have uh, looked at and seen, right? That's a, a metaphor, isn't it? Because that's, uh, that's definitely uh, a little bit about what Arthur does. He's a, he's a simple man rather than plain, I think is the, in the, the sort of modern vernacular. But um, Yeah, because uh, Adams had on the record refuted that he'd heard the name and then retrospectively, everybody went, no, no, he did. And he kind of, I believe, right. he, yes. I believe he hinted that, yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd heard the name. One of the things that I do like, I think finally we get to see him possibly grow a spine, um, is that he really tears into Ford, who, you know, delivers the guide, the, the new guide Mark II as a bird, you know, in care of Arthur. And he has this sort of wonderful moment where they're both in the in the pouring rain on Lamuella, and he really, really um, tears forward a new one. The, the whole of the the, the stuff on Lamuella, and this goes back to the the point I was trying to make before, really about um, there's, there's there's a script for him of you can be successful, you can go to your minor public school, you can get your local radio job. You can uh, move to your to your house that's going to be turned into a bypass. Um, he, he's got that mapped out for him, but um, there's never really any free choice for him or any options for him. Everything is out of his control, and then he, then he's the sandwich maker. And I completely agree that that for me is the the bit where I'm kind of like, yeah, no, I I get Arthur Dent now because he's been told what he's going to be. He's been given that story. He's been given that narrative and he's been playing that part. And he's finally found something that, that he wants. And so if you said to me, what's my, what's my favourite line? It's the line about being the sandwich maker. I make sandwiches for people. They like them. Exactly. That's it, really. They like me and I make sandwiches. That's it. I think you are completely right. And I think you've hit, I think you've hit on something that I, I've not quite been able to articulate that Arthur, I think when he's on Lamuella, I think he's, I think he's home. He's a man. He's a main character, a main protagonist in a book, where essentially things happen to him uh, rather than on his action, aren't they? And is that a metaphor for essentially all of us in life? What? How many of us really can say we went out there and uh, grasped the nettle uh, without getting, um, without having to then grasp the dock leaf? It's more that other other people thrust the nettle at us, and we have to then sort of go. Ah! It's, um, I, it's just, I wonder if we. I'm trying to think of a another passive. Uh, hero of five books i think i think uh to to, to call back to pratchett mm-hmm. i think for the first book rincewind is a passive hero um because he really just is taken around he you know he's he's uh two flowers guide and he's just kind of he's taken around by him and has to show him these things but actually doesn't really do anything and he can't because we know he's a which is a lovely wizard. irony isn't he because you, you're like you're the guide but actually you're just reacting to what the world gives you. So you're not guiding anyone into anything. Absolutely. Uh, and then as as he goes on, I guess 
I mean, he doesn't necessarily get more agency, but I, I, I think he is actually a, a pretty good version of, of, of that same kind of character, but there aren't a lot of them uh, to whom the world just happens around. I was, um, um, after bringing up that idea, I'm wrong, I was just thinking of uh, Our Man in Havana, um, Graham Greene, uh, basically um, uh, Wormold, who was at the start of the book, a vacuum cleaner salesman, who uh, then becomes embroiled in a, a large sort of complex uh, Cuban and uh, British and American, as far as I can remember, spy plot, without ever really knowing what he's doing or doing anything other than saying yes uh, and not and trying to offend people it's um maybe it's more common uh than i than i think about it and it's um may is this possibly one of the reasons why um the film version took so long uh to come to fruition because i think it's much more unusual in particularly big blockbuster film i i i do think that the the problem with the hitchhiker's film is that it was made about five years too early because it would now be you know i think the only reason it hasn't now been remade is it only got remade sorry it only got made you know 12 years ago had it not ever although spider-man's been rebooted three times but yeah uh, no you're Mm. absolutely true you're absolutely right um was that is it has it been 12 years my god we we've got everything that we need in our heads to explain why it wasn't right for a film which is a classic narrative progression um, where the protagonist is changed by events. Um, it's it's difficult in television as well because we want that disruption, this, that progression towards a new equilibrium and that final equilibrium in which everybody has been changed by the story. We do still want that in television and that's why television works on a basis of having season arcs and then episodic content in, in between. But in television, you can do different things with narratives that you can't do in a 90 minutes, two and a half hours to four hours now, because that's how long a film is apparently. I'm bitter about that. Um, <clears throat> you, you can't do that as well in film as you, as, you, as you can in television, which probably brings us on to talking about recasting our Netflix reboot. I think it probably does. Um, so uh, let us have a look at the uh, polls then. Uh, this is the poll that we cast last week to find an actor to play Ford Prefect in a hypothetical Netflix series. And with a staggering 0% of the vote was the slightly stunt-casted um, Idris Elba. Um, I'm shocked, actually. <laughs> I am shocked. No, genuinely, because everybody wants Idris Elba to be all the things, don't they? It's very true, but not enough not enough people uh, that's fine uh with 14 percent of the vote slightly disappointed about this stephen merchant i thought that was a good pick from mar danny there that was a good shout with uh, just over 28 and a half percent riz ahmed now i am sad about that because on, uh, he was yeah because go on riz he was my he was my pick i thought he would have been pretty good but i might just put him in for his aphod <laughs> <laughs> I might just Riz Ahmed all the things. Uh, 21% is your pick, uh, Mr. Hickman, Alison Bree. She did well. Are we going ex- to explain who those last two are for the benefit of me? Oh, you know really? who Stephen Merch... Oh, sorry, Alison Bree and, uh, and Riz Ahmed. Um, I-, I mean, sure. It's fine to be that indulgent, I think. Uh, Riz Ahmed is in um, the... Uh, whew, how many films now? The, the, eighth, the eighth film of a franchise you've never seen. Yeah, <laughs> he's in a Star War. He's in, which, a, he's in the most way, recent Star Wars. It's War. the eighth film, but it's actually the three and a half film. Yeah, so stop just it. so you know, so for twenty one percent, and Alison Brie is a she's a 
She was in Mad Men and she's in a, a, a was in a very popular comedy series called Community, uh, Mr. Bounds. Um, and with just shy of 36% of the vote, it's Michael Sheen. I can get behind that. I've seen him. <laughs> that's that's uh, Bounds' criteria filled. Uh, yeah. I'm okay with all of them. I'm okay with any of those people. Um, but I do think Michael Sheen is a particularly good shout, and I think he can play well off of... Off of uh, Simon Pegg, yeah. So uh, Sheen will join Pegg in our hypothetical uh, Hitchhikers series. Next week, we will come up with some ideas for Zaphod uh, and open the, open the polling soon. And that brings us to the proverbial it. Mr Hickman, what are you up to over there? I'm going on holiday, to be honest. Nice. Where are you going? Go to Beetlejuice. No, no, I'm going to Office and Touring. I was going to say, you're going to go to, to, to try and find a planet where the P is just the right... The P? Where the C is just the uh, the perfect shade of pink. <laughs> and also the P. <laughs> That's you beating asparagus. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go on my holes and the show will all be live when I get back and it's all going to be wonderful and all going to be gravy. Uh, what do you mean, the meantime, will I'm also doing uh, the... You don't look like a runner podcast still, and um, occasionally, sometimes, John and I put some stuff on ParadiseSurface.com. Very good. And speaking of John, John. At the moment, what's obsessing me is um, uh, I'm trying to work out if you can, um, I don't know if uh, listeners remember or have ever heard of the English uh, comedians, the two runners. Um, I'm trying to work out if their um, news uh, format they had at the start of this show can can work as satire. And uh, if you follow me at Bounder, you might find me retweeting a Twitter account to see if I can do that. It's very good. It's really good, and you should do that. Uh, and that just about wraps it up for The Leopard. You can find the show at btlpodcast.com along with all of our contact details. Drop us an email to feedback at btlpodcast.com if you want to tell us that we got something wrong about Arthur. And don't forget to subscribe to the show in your podcast app. Just search for Beware of the Leopard. Thanks again to Audible for sponsoring this episode. Don't forget to pick up your free audiobook and start your 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash leopard. And if you have a moment, do please rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps people find the show and makes us feel like we've drunk three pints at lunchtime. We'll be back in a week, so until then... Share and enjoy. Best joke I've heard about a boiler. The uh, there was um, I was on a football forum once, a Birmingham City football, forum, and uh, basically someone was trying to do a tortured metaphor about why uh, the manager should have been um, like bringing young players through um, while the team were doing well, rather than having to bring them through when they were the team were doing crap. What you do is get your boiler serviced every year, um, uh, is, but you know r- rather than waiting for it to break down. And the other chap said. Uh, what boiler? Are you saying they haven't sorted the boiler out? And he's going, no, no, it's a hypothetical boiler. And the chap just says, I ain't got one of them. I've got a Potterton. <laughs> <laughs>